Hi, my name is Elijah and welcome to Roots Podcast, an interview channel that dives into the personal stories of those in the hospitality industry, whether it be in the restaurant, out in the field and those in the media as they look back on where it all started for them. It is a retrospective look on the passion, ambition and drive involved in a competitive industry. I'd also like to add that this podcast is proudly supported by the Australian Good Food Guide. On today's show, we have guest Michael Chiam, the owner of Sydney's much-loved and highly awarded PS40, having been rated 95 in the world's top 50 bars, with many other accolades from the Time Out Awards with Best Cocktail Bar, Hot New Talent and 2020's Best Bar. The team behind it seems unstoppable and it's all led by 2016's Australian Bartender of the Year, Michael Chiam. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, dude. <laughs> How you doing? I'm very well, thank you, man. Very All right. Well. So I wanted to start by taking this back to early childhood. Mm-hmm. Where did you grow up and what was life like for Michael? Um, so I grew up in the western suburbs as a kid. Uh, my family came, or well, my mum and dad met in Sydney in like the Cabramatta, Liverpool area. They escaped the Vietnam War, um, ended up in... I think I'm pretty sure it was Malaysia and then eventually made their way to Sydney where a lot of Vietnamese people um, had migrated to most of my childhood I actually grew up in uh, the Southern Shire so yeah the Shire area uh, we grew up in Karimba so my parents being the um, typical Asian high achieving kind of parents um, (laughs) got my sister to apply for a selective school and then she got into Karimba High, which is a pretty pretty nice high school to go to. Part of the public system, but you have to obviously pass the test to get into it. Um, when they when she got into it, we, we pretty much uprooted everything. And they bought a house, I think, two blocks from the school. Um, so that's where we grew up for until I was about 17 or 18. I think 18, I moved out of home when I went to university. But yeah, that's where I, I grew up most of my life. Pretty pretty nice place to to, to be in, in the world, I would say. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty crazy with your parents coming out of the Vietnam War. It's very similar to Lee Tran's dad. Same mm. thing happened. He, he had to escape and, and um, escaped on a boat and managed to get over to Thailand. Did you want to share maybe a story of, of yeah, um, what it was like for them? I think it's so crazy. Um, <laughs> the yeah. stories weren't really told that much when I was a kid, to be honest. Uh, about the war, dad always avoided the um, conversations. Mum, every now and then, would get a little emotional about it and tell us a few things, but I guess um, it's something that I understood that was probably not a very uh, nice thing to, to be talking about. Yeah, all about actually being escaping on boats. Um, escaping on boats is crazy, and it's all about uh, the things that they had to encounter. Obviously, the boats, to get on a boat, you had to sell uh, you, you would trade a lot of gold those days. And still to these days, Vietnamese people love bars of gold for some reason. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> it seems like a very ancient way of like uh, transacting money, but man, uh, Vietnamese people like bars of gold. Don't, don't accept visa. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my dad's family, um, they, he, he's crazy, dude. He is number uh, 10 of 13 kids. Wow. Yeah, and that he has twelve sisters. <laughs> it's insane. What a lucky dude! I don't know how that works, man. Um, so he has a very big family. Um, my mum has three siblings, I think. Um, yeah, three siblings, and so they've got very rich kind of family stories. 
Um, escaping a boat is insane because you're stuck so much. We're like, for, for days and days, you don't really have much food. Yeah, mum has a few, had a few like, good stories about how they um, all rationed instant noodles. Mm. Um, and being actually on top of the deck was the best because the smell down the bottom with in the cabin like people were pissing and shitting mm. and eating in the same areas and being up on the deck with some, like with fresh air was the best place to be um and unfortunately like not all boats made it um they were lucky enough to to be on a couple that that made it to shore um and then just the stories of pirates um ransacking essentially everything really yeah yeah so like the Peep, the, the sensation of like having um, being on a boat and then seeing another boat is actually a really good thing because you're like oh my god we've got some support or we we think the um, this is a boat that might help us and yeah, whatnot yeah. and then they board the boat and essentially try to steal ev- everything because when you're escaping from a war you always have all your valuables mm. with you right whatever you can sell to, to make some money at the other end um, so yeah, some pretty crazy things, man. Yeah, um, right. But yeah, the as a kid, I hardly heard anything from from them, and it's understandable, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah so did you go to the Kangbar school, or did you go to a separate? Yeah, school? I was lucky enough <laughs> to, <laughs> to to have also made it into that school. Yeah, um, which made my parents very happy, and it was also a good two blocks away from. From home, so I could come. I, I could. I could have gone home for lunch if I wanted to. Um, <laughs> I made it really easy. Like uh, my my high school life was very simple compared to a lot of people who went to the same school. They travelled a lot further than I did. Wow. Um, I think some of my friends probably would have commuted forty five minutes to an hour to like. I, there was one one guy that lived in uh, Stanmore Tops. Mm. Oh really? And yeah, and commuted to Caramba. Um, eh, it's what people do for. Education sometimes, hey? That's it, yeah. eh? Yeah. I'd rather bloody hang out <laughs> That's too nice. Yeah, it is a very nice area. So, coming in the end of high school, what were you kind of, um, what were your influences and what were you into in terms of like music, culture and scene? Music, I loved listening to, uh, and, and me and my friends would love uh, the indie alternative kind of music. Um, I, I also did music as a kid. I did um, uh, a very stereotypical uh classical piano oh nice yeah so I think I did up to my um, AMUS which is like a diploma of some sorts also my friends essentially influenced my my taste in music they um, were really into playing jazz as well so yeah right um, I had some big jazz influences when I was in year 12 from a couple of my friends that were playing in jazz bands yeah nice and I started taking some jazz lessons too and uh, made music so much more fun than it was for me like five years prior. Mm. Um, yeah, well, at, at school, um, I mean, living in Karen was so awesome, dude. Uh, you could go to the beach in like a five to ten minute drive. So some of us were um, surfing and bodyboarding just before high school started. So like six six thirty in the morning, yeah, nice. jump in the water. And then go to school with like uh, undie full of sand. <laughs> it's just pretty funny. Um, and yeah, that was pretty cool lifestyle, dude. Like um, in that area, I, I did a lot of martial arts too as a kid. I oh, hectic. Yeah, so I did Wing Chun, which has really uh, found its kind of feet um, just recently. 
pretty unknown to a lot of people, but uh, to give you a quick nutshell, in popular culture, uh, Bruce Lee started out doing Wing Chun and then developed his, uh, his own style of martial art. Um, and then just recently, in the last like decade, um, a series of movies called Ip Man oh, uh, yeah. with Donnie Chen, I think it's Donnie Chen, um, came out. And he's real famous in the Asian movie star scene, right? Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure he was in one of the latest Star Wars as well. Um, Donnie Chen. Oh, Donnie Yen, maybe. Um, but yeah, they uh, did Wing Chun probably like three to four times minimum a week. Wow. Um, yeah, I was going pretty hardcore at it and um, teaching in the city as well, actually. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. So I think that was one thing where like that probably the first time I had to hold myself in front of like 20 to 30 uh, adults that were probably double my age and, and but I was teaching them how to do some of these martial arts yeah yeah, yeah. it's pretty cool right that had been awesome yeah yeah to, to be honest like I, I grew up watching a little bit of um, Bruce Lee Jet Li Jackie yeah. Chan like, I love them man I remember Drunken Master I was talking about that mm. that was probably one of my favourite Jackie Chan movies I thought that was really funny but yeah it's, it's crazy how, how that scene came over and it was only really when it was like pushed out in these, these like western films when Bruce Lee mm. started doing like English and Jackie Chan with Rumble in the Bronx I think it was his first yeah, major yeah. western film like things like that the, that this culture the western culture started to really like see that and appreciate it and, mm. and it, it's great like you being able to teach it in Sydney and it be like quite popular and more, more yeah. accepted or understood as I, well I, I, thought, I thought it was great um, gave me a lot of confidence as a high school kid you know mm. um and also, not just the martial arts, but having to travel in to the city. Um, and uh, you're obviously, like, you're from Wollongong, you know, mm. obviously the Cronulla area is pretty, pretty sheltered, I would say, uh, at the best of times. Um, a lot of people <laughs> who live there would very rarely venture out. Yeah. Um, so for me to have this, like, city experience, um, and the city when you're a little kid is, like, pretty daunting um <laughs> big world yeah exactly man so that was a really cool experience for me catching the train late at home like late at night uh i remember like some dude trying to pickpocket me once bullshit really yeah yeah for sure like he he wasn't doing a very good job but uh, <laughs> yeah, this guy trying, like yeah. slowly kept like creeping up to me and like moving his hands towards my pocket and i was like Phew. uh i had like one other friend with me sitting across from me and um uh, we avoided the confrontation, um, but uh, it gave me the com- the confidence essentially to to and, and probably the smarts to not start a fight as well. Uh, and that's the, the number one thing that when we first start um, doing martial arts, it's like the first thing you do in real life is not to fight. Like find every situation possible to get out of it um, first before you actually have to to use anything that you might have learned mm. yeah um, that was I thought a really good teaching as well that's awesome yeah man so coming out of high school you got music you got Wing Chun and you've got surfing all, all mm. in your back of, of, of everything where did you think you were going to go uh, out of that and what was your direction heading to um, I ended up doing uh, medical science out of high school and uh, going to Sydney University and thinking I would do the exact same thing um, but I got a job when I was 17, so still in year 12, maybe I was 16, but working at uh, Wagamama, uh, oh, nice. the Japanese uh, restaurant chain, yeah, right? sick. Um, at the galleries when it was open. 
I just applied for a job there when I was, uh, I think I was eating food at the time and I was just like, is anyone, are you guys looking for work? Um, that was my first ever job. Like, I mean, I might, I might have done small jobs here and there in the mm. past, but I was at like, my, my first proper job. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, got a job there. And so I did hospitality while I was doing medical science. And then over the years, my love of hospitality slowly took over uh, medical science and wanting to be a doctor. Decided that wasn't really for me. Mm. And that's what I love, I think, about hospitality. Like, you can find out straight away if it's for you or not. Whereas, like, uh, I could have done this med- medicine degree or medical uh, science degree, and by the end of it, I'd know a lot of stuff, but I still wouldn't know if the job was for me or not. Um, yeah, it's a big risk. Yeah, yeah, it's all man. The amount of study these uh, these people do. Uh, my sister did six years. Um, she did a straight medicine degree. Yeah, right. And yeah, I mean, they're still learning every day, obviously. <laughs> um, but it's a it's a lot of work to go through to then get some job experience. Um, uh, whereas you know, like you know yourself straight away it's learning on the job yeah in hospitality which is one one major thing that i like about it yeah so wagamama would have been your first job that kind of exposed you to that hospitality sense and really kind of got you more involved just talking to people being around in that environment i wasn't doing much i was running food uh preparing really simple beverages i would say like uh, i wasn't 18 at the time so i wasn't allowed to handle any booze yeah right um but i was just busting tables um and and taking orders eventually mm. um, not getting paid very much I think the hour, hour, hourly rate was maybe $13 something yeah, um, right. for a person of my age and uh, I don't know if that's I'm pretty sure that's not legal anymore uh, but maybe the rates back in those days were obviously a lot lower yeah, yeah, um, yeah. than what the rates are probably available now yeah I remember my first year apprenticeship I was like what, 19 I was getting like 11 bucks yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, hundred percent. But at least, yeah, they at least they 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 label it under apprenticeship. Yeah, exactly. This was, this was just working. Yeah, yeah, it's not a legal wage. It's yeah. apprenticeship. Yeah, you get yeah. away with it. It's supposedly learning as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, the that was an interesting experience for me. Yeah, yeah, and eventually you started waiting tables at different restaurants and like other. Yeah. Um, well, I stopped working at Wagamama for like a couple months mm. while the HSC was on. And yep. then after that, uh, I I went to Japan for part of my schoolies, nice. and borrowed a bunch of money from my from from my mum, and I said to her, as soon as I get back, I'll pay it all off. So I got another job at Wagamama on King Street Wharf, and that's when I paid um, essentially like eighty to ninety percent of my paycheck would be going to pay my mum back off. And then after working there for a little bit, I. Applied for a job at the Novotel in Brighton Los Sands as a bartender. Were you working there and Wagamama same time? No, so I left Wagamama. Um, I, I'm pretty sure I was still living at home then. Uh, I, I moved out of home intermittently for a little bit um, in, to live in Glebe oh, yeah. while I was at university. But I'm pretty sure I would have been in Karimba, um when I applied for this job at the Novotel. Mm. And I was working there as a bar back to start with. Yeah. Well, I was probably making drinks pretty fast as well. Like the guys that worked behind the bar there, um, like it's not like the, it wasn't the most cutting edge bar, but we were making all the you know the essential bar classics you you need to learn 
when you're when you're starting out and there are all these cheesy disco drinks like uh Toblerons and Brainy Alexanders and Caprioskas and yeah. whatever. Yeah, they were they were like very uh hotel kind of style drinks as well. But and the guys were so good, they started teaching me up on the bar almost immediately. So there wasn't uh fortunately for me a glassy to bartender barrier to break mm. which is quite common these days like to see you know like if you wanted to get a start somewhere you'd have to polish glasses for like six months to a year at least mm. to even get to make a fucking vodka lime soda or something like yeah, that yeah standard um which is pretty insane i think uh it's obviously nice to earn your stripes but um Six six months polishing glasses, a year polishing glasses is very. It's like asking you to peel uh, onions for a, a year before you get to start cooking, right? I know people that have yeah, had to do it too. Hundred <laughs> percent, um, and I just think that's not that's not breeding the right kind of uh, attitude. Mm. Yeah, some 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 sometimes sometimes you need to do stuff that way. Sometimes you don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you just go get thrown in the deep end. All right, so we're kind of heading in that direction. So how long ago was that being at Novotel and kind of? Uh, I think up? I was nineteen. Yeah, and I worked there for about a year and a half uh, or so, and earned some decent money there because the bar was open till three a.m. every single day, so exactly. the hours were available for us. And mm. I think the shift started at like eleven. If you like, I mean. It's a hotel bar, so yeah, right. um, yeah. The service, I think, the bar opened at midday and then closed at three a.m. And there would be no one there till three a.m. <laughs> um, it was only open because there was a gaming room downstairs. Yeah. So legally, you had to have a bar open while the gaming room was open. Oh right. Yeah, it's one of those. Oh right, yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Otherwise, I think it's just like uh, you just literally just take money from people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's a crazy rule, but most most rules with legislation with alcohol are pretty crazy. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, so I earned some decent coin there, and moved. Oh, that was when I moved to Glebe um, to be closer to to university. Hmm. I was like a five minute escape from my bedroom to my lecture, which that's is sick. awesome, dude. That's sick. Living in a tiny little bedroom, and I didn't care. Um, Spent like 140 bucks a week in rent, mm. which when I look back at it now, I was like, absolutely killer. <laughs> like, uh, 140 a week is unheard of, uh, to, especially that location. You know? Yeah, it's yeah, pretty yeah. cool. Close to the uni. Um, so when I went uh, to live in Glebe, I stopped working at the Novotel because it's just uh, it didn't make sense to travel that far to get to work. Um, I did a cash in hand job at Crenides. Um, working ridiculous hours for, for straight cash, mm. uh, which is also insane. Um, and after that, um, I've got my first job in a really nice restaurant at Class Brasserie. So yeah. Class Brasserie at the Hilton. Um, under It was like one of the Luke Mangan restaurants. Mm. Um, it was a really nice wine bar that I worked in under some really good mentors of mine. And... That's where I learned how to carry three plates, with um, do wine service, mm. make really nice drinks. Um, that's when my colleagues started um, introducing me to like this fine dining scene and drinking co- good good drinking and eating culture. Like on on our you know what it's like on our breaks we would go to 
places like Rockpool for a burger or something like that and living living up yeah the having now. like a couple of Negronis on our break like and I was just like whoa this is what is this lifestyle <laughs> um like these guys are splashing out like two three hundred dollars on like a dinner I'm like man that's like that's a lot of money. Yeah, well, where yeah, am I yeah. now? Yeah, it's, and, it's and it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't about. It wasn't about. We were definitely not living within our means. Like, <laughs> like going out for lunch or dinner and spending more than you'd make in a day is pretty yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. Although the tips there were pretty good, um, I, I just couldn't believe it because obviously in the last few jobs that I had, that was just not a thing. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, and then it made me start appreciating hospitality and going to a nice place and. Yeah. And, and all the nice trimmings, yeah, of, of that kind of lifestyle. Um, you yeah, didn't so happen to run into Charlie at the Zeta Bar, did you? I did, actually. Yeah, Small that's where world. we first met. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Um, How funny. You wouldn't recognize him if you saw him back in those days. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, actually the reason why I wanted a job at Glass was because I was trying to get a job at Zeta Bar. How funny. Because that was, back in those days, probably one of the top four cocktail bars um, in Sydney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wanted to work at one of the best, right? Mm. Um, back in those days, though, the competition wasn't that, that tough. I think there were four cocktail bars in Sydney. Um, <laughs> but it was pretty cutting edge at the time. Mm. Um, and I really, really wanted a job there. Unfortunately, never got one. Um, but I ended up working for Grant Collins, who essentially consulted for Zeta Bar. Mm. Um, he opened up a bar up in Neutral Bay. So after about a year at Glass, I went to go work at this uh, small cocktail bar in Nutri Bay called The White Hot. Oh, yeah. Um, and then shortly after that, I um, landed my first bar management role um, over at Black by Ezard in the casino. Uh, it's, yeah, not right. run, it's not run by um, Tig Ezard anymore, um, but uh, that was a really crazy experience to, to open up a brand new restaurant and, and run the bar. Yeah, yeah. Um, at a pretty young age too, I think I was 23, and the sommelier James was 23 as well. So wow. we have a very young team. Um, but Craig, our general manager, Craig Hemmings, was um, he had a well. I think he'd like to think, and also I would agree with him that he has a bit of a knack for seeing um, younger talent. Yeah, yeah. And and nurturing that, and rather than in in I guess more traditional senses of jobs, mm. you always choose people that are older and more experienced, right? Um, he sometimes eared uh, the, the opposite way. Yeah, it's a smart approach when you, when you think about it. Yeah, you wanna... if, if it pays off. If, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, if you get the right yeah. people in that are dedicated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and um, James and I were working our asses off, dude. Uh, we would go to work. I was still at university. And I, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah so I did like four and a half years of uni, uh, two degrees that are uh, not completed. Um, I can start paying off my hexes yeah. too, mate. Don't worry. Oh, luckily <laughs> enough, my, my mother paid for every single university semester up front. Um, she, what a champ. She just had this weird thing about like owing money to someone. Yeah, she was yeah, like, yeah. I'll just pay this and then you'll get me back one day. Um, so I got you. Yeah, yeah. So I thankfully didn't have to, to pay hex or whatever. But I, I, I have to pay in many other ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know who's, who's better to owe money to. Yeah, um, can't miss a Christmas holiday. Yeah, though, exactly, yeah. dude. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so I was still at university. Um, but with this bar management role, we were opening up this new restaurant. We, um, I tried to do the job simultaneously as, as well as university. And I had been working full-time hours with uni before mm. um, 
I've done, you know, 30 to 45 hours pretty easily and done university at the same time, up to 60 hours sometimes and, and somehow still managed it. Um, but with this new job, I just, I literally couldn't physically attend university. Um, so on the last census day, I just cancelled it and just deferred it. All right. And I haven't been back since. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, we were... Dude, I would eat at this restaurant, Fat Noodle, up on the gaming floor. It's one of Luke Nguyen's con- consults. Um, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like, first meal of the day, lunchtime, and then dinner, and then keep working. Yeah. And we were just working our asses off. Because, one, we were 23. Mm. And, two, we wanted to do a really good job. It's mm. like... Uh, just something that was necessary at the time yeah pretty pretty crazy like uh time and and i mean looking back at it now i really appreciate the outcomes as well mm. yeah so at that point you kind of you knew like wanting to work at places like the zeta bar becoming general manager you, you definitely had your sights on wanting to go in this kind of yeah bar hospitality direction yeah i i mean it's so funny because most bartenders don't come from restaurant backgrounds mm. they all come from working in pubs or whatever uh, or nice bars and work their way up in the bar scene I, I, I was on the fringe of working in restaurants this entire time mm. and bartending so I had a kind of different perspective to a lot of bartenders um, and I really enjoyed restaurant service Yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah this whole time I, I was working my way to, to continually work in bars not restaurants um, it was just by chance that I guess my restaurant history kind of led me towards being a bar manager in a restaurant. Mm. Um, and I, we opened up Black and we, we did really well. I think we got like a highly commended award in Time Out. And uh, that was the first year I won an award personally. Oh, yeah. Um, I think I won Time Out, the Hot Talent Time Out in like 2013 or 12. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> uh, and that was the first time that... Um, like my mum and dad were like starting to, to look at it and be like, ah, oh, maybe like it's not a horrible decision after all. Uh, like he's, he's doing okay. Um, and so we made a name for ourselves in the bar there. I had a crazy good team and they were all restaurant based too, but they were bartenders. So the service, like eating, eating at the bar in our, in our restaurant was just as good as eating in a section with the best waiter. Do you yep. know what I mean? Like, and we treated the service uh, with a lot of attention mm. at Black. And yeah, that's kind of where it went to. And uh, then I was lucky enough to be put in charge of the bar at Sokyo as well. And that's where I got to meet Chase. Awesome. Um, actually, Chase and I met when he came into the bar at Black all the time. <laughs> uh, and then we parted a few times. And then eventually, I got the role to, to look oversee both bars. Hectic. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Um, and then um, I just worked at Sokyo straight up for... A little while as well. I think I was at the casino for about three three years, and right. it does have a lot of um, cops a lot of flack for being in the casino. Um, you don't have to obviously go through a gaming floor or anything like that to get to the restaurants, um, but being funded and uh, owned by a casino, you often get a lot of people. I mean, it's not no one no one would always just like straight out give you like a shit comment and be like, oh, I'm not going to the casino or anything but you definitely felt that there was a bit of a oh I don't really want to go to, yeah. to that kind of place for that reason they would never a lot of people wouldn't say it but you could definitely have, feel that sensation that uh, you're already on a different pedestal or like a, a foot peg because you're owned by the casino 
Yeah. And I had the, its pros and cons. Like it's pretty crazy. Like the budgeting there was just insane. Um, because you know some guy upstairs is like spending millions of dollars. <laughs> um, so that's probably like one of the reasons why I started to look for jobs in small businesses. So because I wanted to open up my own place one day. Right. Um, and I, over the years, I've fallen in and out of love with wanting to open a business. Mm. Um, and I just saw like the need to work in small business before that might even potentially happen. So I ended up getting offered a role with um, uh, the boys over at uh, Bulletin Place. And I, worked, I wanted to just work as a bartender um, and just learn what a small business, how it operates, what a real budget looks like, all that kind of jazz. And uh, I worked from uh, Bolton Place to Tio's and Cliff Dive, and then uh, Lobo Plantation while we were building this place. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, uh, like PS40. Yeah. Hector. So, uh, yeah, I took a job at Lobo because um, this place, number one, was delayed heaps in, in its opening mm. for various different reasons. And then I was just literally a gun for hire. Uh, if anyone needed a spare hand, I would, I would get the extra hours. Um, and then I landed a semi-permanent position at Lobo for almost a year, really. Yeah, yeah. Probably nine months I worked there. Um, but for a little while, I just literally put my hand up to any of my friends and just said, hey, if you got some shifts going. So I worked at, I pulled some shifts at Henry Dean, uh, like I'm saying when I, I pulled some shifts I probably did like you know six to ten shifts so yeah. I did some shifts at Mojo Record Bar around the corner I pulled some shifts at uh, the barber shop and it was just essentially um, to fund building this place like, yeah, right. like I, I wanted to obviously focus on building the place and, and that took up most of my time mm. but at the same time you still need to pay rent you need to do all this kind of stuff right like you need money yeah, yeah. and uh, uh, I probably prematurely quit my job my full-time jobs a little bit too early being a bit naive with thinking that the bar would open and there would be no like problems with opening a bit a business right yeah <laughs> uh, yeah i wish I, I wish i had a second chance to do it again uh but definitely quit those full-time positions mm. way too early yeah, um, yeah yeah but that's also my kind of mentality it was like if i want to do something good i i i had this position of ps40 being like okay opening that is your full-time job now right even though it doesn't make any money yeah yeah uh while it's, it's not open that was like my priority I was like how can i work for uh some dudes that own some really great bars open a bar and work full-time for them at the same time it's like impossible mm. um so that's when i took that little step down i worked out really well at lobo because i, I they knew i was opening this bar mm. and dre who was running it at the time uh, just gave me shifts that made it feasible for me to do so. So awesome. um, I never, I remember I started doing some opens and it was like nine, t- uh, you had to start at like anywhere around 10 to 12. Mm. And I just said to him, I was like, dude, I can't do these like 10 to 12 starts because I need to be taking phone calls from like either a lawyer or a real estate agent or a builder or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I'm stuck in a basement right now. So I would start my shift around like four or five, do the bulk of the service and, and close. Um, and it worked really well for me. But during doing all these shifts and getting this set up, you said you were getting the sodas going on at home. Yeah, so uh, uh, my business partner at the time, Tor, and myself were uh, developing a soda. 
and it's called Pia Soda. The, 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 the idea was to launch the bar and a soda production space in the same, same area. Mm. Um, and so we got our first client, uh, Archie Rose, many, many years ago, just before they opened up, they decided to go with our uh, tonic syrup. Hectic. So we didn't even have a bottling line. We didn't have anything. Um, and we were just making it uh, in our kitchens uh, at home, essentially. Um, obviously, like to a, the same degree that I would make it in the bar here, but uh, we didn't have a commercial space at the time. Yeah, yeah, um, So a little dodgy in that kind of sense, like <laughs> that, you know, like a council inspector can't walk through. But yeah, yeah, we sure. knew what we were doing. We, we were making um, things in, in, in a pretty clean and proper manner. Um, so they were our first customer way before the bar even opened. Um, and then that helped essentially uh, hone in on the recipe that we ended up using to actually bottle and produce here. So eventually you and Tor come to the idea of owning your first PS40 or your first bar in, in yeah. March, April 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how that came about between the two of you. Um, him and I both worked at Bulls in Place. So he just moved uh, over from, where was he at the time? I think he was in New York. He, can't, he has a very different bartending background to me. He's gone all around the world, uh, whereas yeah, right. I've gone all around Sydney. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I looked at that as a pretty cool um, partnership. Yeah. That he had so much international experience from uh, Melbourne, New Zealand to Singapore to London and New York. That's awesome. Yeah. And then I was a bit more known in Sydney mm. uh, and, and had my kind of solid base here. So we worked really well together in that kind of respects. Um, we met at Bulletin Place and he wanted to open up a soda company and I wanted to open up a bar. So it was um, kind of meshing the two ideas together. Mm. Um, so we met up, met up for coffee a few times and decided that was a good idea. Uh, we opened them up at the same time, although, as I was saying to you, the soda company uh, didn't commercially launch till about 18 months after the bar was open. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, it was a, a tough project, man. Like opening up a bar and a soda company at the same time with very little budget is <laughs> just crazy, dude. Um, we used our own money. We didn't have any investors or backers or anything like that. Mm. Um, and we decided, obviously, to open up the bar first mm. because we knew that side of things like that was an easy that was, compared to like opening up a soda company that was like a breeze uh, and it wasn't exactly a breeze obviously opening up any venue is super hard yeah it sounds uh, better in th- sounds easy in theory yeah so we just decided to launch the bar first and then just go from there so yeah that's it was a pretty crazy time like we we were trying to do both at the same time and then realized that there was just no not enough physical time to do it Hmm. What were some of the other dramas that you had to deal with trying to open up PS40? I know you mentioned you maybe quit your jobs too soon, but yeah. what was it about trying to get this place going and the soda company that you realized were? Well, uh, I mean, so many, so many things, but I, I guess in no particular order, um, learning how to deal with council and... and They're rubbish. Uh, learning how to do... The liquor license was really like a big learning curve too. Right. Obviously, it's just something I'd never done before. So, yeah. And applying through council, making sure that the building was um, to code as well was um, something that took a little bit of time as well. There's arguments about the bathrooms not being 
uh, a certain manner and um, that started escalating a lot actually from our certifier who was my brother-in-law uh, I've gotten a bit of a, a bit of an email kind of fight with the council just saying it just escalated to the point where he, I think he said essentially like well, I'm happy to take it to the building code of Australia and just be like look what we're arguing is completely fine and that's when the council guys kind of stepped down a bit and they were like okay cool like you can you can now open Wow. Uh, yeah, it just got, it, it, they, they kind of, opening a bar was all about uh, the laws and the rules that you kind of have to bend a little bit and what whatnot. And he made an argument that the current bathrooms that we had were perfectly fine for a capacity of 60 people. Um, it's actually fine for 100 people. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, one of the guys at council kind of decided that it wasn't um, and it just wasn't going anywhere for a little while. So that was one thing that kind of delayed us a bit. Um, dealing with builders, we had some really uh, dodgy builders um, that we ended up uh, that ended up actually walking out on the job. Wow. Yeah, so that was something that was definitely put us behind like a month or two as well. Mm. Um, and that's an experience that I, I, I treasure did. Like I look at it now, I was tearing my hair out at the time, but now if I was to open up a second venue or help a friend essentially open up their venue by just just being a mate and giving them some advice um i have plenty to to offer that's for sure um i reckon if i had a second chance of opening up ps40 like i would have shaved off three three to six, three to six months worth of delays do you know yeah I mean? yeah but that's just like that's what life's all about right that's a learning curve yeah, yeah. you gotta learn uh, by doing it um and thankfully we didn't go bankrupt which is the main mm. thing it was definitely looking at it like we weren't, we would not launch uh, at one point. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but we got across the line and, and look at us now. We're four years in and, and still kicking. Now, 18 months later, after opening PS40, you finally get your sodas going, mm-hmm. which uh, I remember reading it took you, th- uh, I quote, three years and a few explosions before yeah. you, you had to figure out <laughs> and push so that. I think it was 18 months before the bar had opened and then 18 months after it had opened uh like so yeah 18 months without a venue yeah beforehand and 18 months inside the venue it took us to actually launch the soda company yeah um but that was pretty cool like knowing that we had successfully bottled something and working with the machinery is crazy dude like um <laughs> I know there's a 500 liter tank somewhere yeah yeah of, uh, yeah so like working with that machinery uh your brain has to change um Every single bartender here working at the time as well would do a day shift bottling as well. Oh, right. So that was a really cool experience, you know. Yeah, like, for sure. To have, like, as a, as a bartender, to, to also have the ability to have a shift where you're not doing your normal day-to-day job, mm. but you're still in the drinks uh, industry. Um, I really appreciated that. And not only that, but it gave you a night off mm. as well. Yeah. So, and a night off, even though you worked a full day's worth of work, a night off is, for a bartender is like a day off. Yeah. So... Uh, that was really cool kind of dynamic that we had at the time as well. Yeah. And it allowed and, you know, every single bartender here to, to be able to take someone up to the soda area and be like, hey, this is exactly how it works. Like, yeah. I know because I actually made it. Yeah. Uh, that was a pretty cool sensation to, to have. Um, it's now moved off-site. It moved off-site in September. Yeah, awesome. Um, so there's been a slight business change. Uh, tours, um I mean, it was Tor's idea in the first place to open up a soda company, and uh, he's now taken it off-site to a slightly larger space in Botany. Oh, wow. Um, 
and it's now distributed by uh, Proof & Co, which we work really closely with in the bar. Mm. They're a distribution and spirits kind of company. Um, they also do consulting and et cetera for bars. Mm. Um, and so uh, I took a little step down, obviously being like in the bar all the time, it was pretty, didn't make sense to be a director anymore in, in the soda company and that's more his full-time kind of knack. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I just have a share in it now and, and we still support it at the bar. Yeah. Um, it's just not made in the bar anymore so it's, it's pretty hard to be able to do the whole, you know, welcome to the bar. This is where we used to make the sodas. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so that spiel had to change. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I bought the bar off tour in September and... Um, now our focus is a little bit different, man, and 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 COVID obviously changed everything as well. Mm. Um, and then we started questioning: okay, where is Peace Forty now? Um, what do we do here? Yeah. What? Why do people come here? They're no longer coming here to see where the sodas are made. But thankfully, over the last four years, um, we're really well known as a cocktail bar, um, not just a place that makes sodas. Um, so I was just thinking: okay, cool. Let's just push that as hard as we can, mm. um, and just resonate that through the menu through the staff mm. uh, through our drinks um, and then yeah our our sales uh, I, don't, I haven't even looked at the breakdown of our cocktails but from from making the drinks it feels like everyone's coming specifically to drink cocktails um, even though we have a great focus in wine and yeah. beer um, uh, the main the main uh, aim of the game is definitely the boozier drinks yeah I think it's it's interesting that you mentioned that that when you reflect on PS40, you you can highlight and, and know that people are coming here for your cocktails and and the effort you put behind the prep and and the time yeah. and, and the labor in that. Because uh, I remember reading in the 2017 interview you did with Departure Internationals, you mentioned how one of the key things that bars kind of highlighting is being able to reuse and recycle like different ingredients in order mm. to be more environmentally aware of waste. Yeah, uh, and that's something that you really wanted to highlight and 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 started doing here with some of your drinks. Do you just want to maybe go through and explain like your processes and and some of the drinks you're able to reuse and and push the flavors out of things that people wouldn't? Yeah, maybe for sure, man. Typically, um, I think I've got a couple of really good examples. Like the n- number one thing as well is like waste, or what you would in quotations uh, consider waste, isn't always necessarily going to be delicious. Um, so there's, there, there are times where you try to save something and reuse it or whatever, and uh, you might just end up literally serving garbage to a customer. And that's, <laughs> that's, not, that's, not, that's not cool. <laughs> um, but if it does work out and it's delicious, that's a magical moment, right? Yeah. And uh, there have been a few magical moments where we have done that. Uh, don't, don't get me wrong, though, there's a lot of failures as well. Mm. The one magical moment off the top of my head right now would probably be the breakfast Negroni ice cream. Um, so to make this drink that everyone would come to the bar for, we would sous vide banana bread, coffee bean, tonka bean, and co- uh, coffee bean um, all together, five hours, and then ice bath at first, strain it off, and get as much liquid as we can out of it. But being banana bread, it's going to soak up about 15 to 25% of the Negroni, right? And yeah, right. You're, you're losing, you're losing booze essentially. <laughs> you know, like the banana bread's drunk and you can't get it out of it, right? And for I think a good year, we were just like straining it as hard as we could, just to get as much yield as possible. Um, and that liquid then would be frozen, 
for two days. Uh, once it gets to a certain point uh, where it's not too frozen, but it's not room temp, all the fats solidify and we strain that off and all the oils. So you get a nice clean drinking Negroni, but with the flavors of what we sous vide into them, right? Oh, wow. Uh, but then, yeah, the mushy banana bread was just like, uh, well, to make this delicious cocktail, we kind of have to forego like the angel's share, essentially. It's like the banana bread's share of booze. <laughs> um, and we just thought, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, we combined an old recipe uh, a friend gave me to make um, ice cream. We used to make a bread milk ice cream uh, for one of the drinks. And it was uh, literally labeled the trash, like, trash can Pandan was the name of the fucking cocktail. Uh, and people still come in and they're like, do you guys still have that? And, uh, and I can't believe that people, like, you know, there's another scenario where you put a drink on a menu and you're like, That's, it's not going to be like a number one seller. Yeah, yeah. And it just becomes something else. Um, but yeah, so we had this old recipe that we combined with this uh, breakfast Negroni bread and we turned it into breakfast Negroni ice cream. So mm. it was like a boozy little ice cream. And we gave it out um, as like, a, like an amuse-bouche or a fucking, uh, what do you call it? Like a petit four at a restaurant. Yeah. You know, like, uh, it was something that we didn't really charge people for. Or if they really did want to like, continually get it, we would charge them a little bit. Yeah. But it was more of like a nice gesture. You know, like when you go into a, a restaurant, you get a little gift uh, on the way out or something yeah. like that. Or appreciation of like someone coming in so it was just something that we kind of gave out to people as a little bit of fun yeah, yeah, yeah. and it didn't get wasted yeah trash can pan down yeah uh, so yeah breakfast negroni ice cream man that was like uh, one of the most delicious delicious uh, creations now in terms of uh, not using uh, or creating drinks out of waste literally with COVID it's just I, I, I come into work and I will look at what's in the cool room and just literally that that's the menu for the day yeah creativity uh, because I think I think you need to do that when yeah. your business isn't running at full stride yeah and uh, being in season being affordable and delicious at the same time is, is no has never been more important trying not to over order and, and, and it does stunt creativity a little bit because you have less in your, your cool room to, 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 to paint a picture with but at the same time uh, you've got to be creative in different ways now mm. yeah. I think that's really well put yeah. just wanted to say that like yes, being seasonal and creative has never been more important I think it's really like a simple way to put it which is I think something that people always say that they do over the past like I don't know 10-20 years being seasonal but like now it's like it's no fucking around. Yeah, like. yeah, no. now, now, yeah. Now you're 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 pushed into a corner. Yeah, exactly. And like, now we will actually truly be because uh, that's literally yeah. saving your business is getting what is the cheapest at the moment. That's what's in season. Yeah, like, dude. I think um, it's yeah, one hundred percent. And we juice everything to order now, pretty much. Yeah. Um, whereas prior to that was like let's just juice like an hour before service, and. It's just all the tiny little things that you can try do to to make a little bit more money from what you've invested in um, makes a big difference. Yeah. At what point did you realize that you and Tor um, had made PS40 and it was starting to really offshoot and become a, like a big deal in Sydney that it started to become really popular in the scene? I don't know. I think it's, 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 it's a tough one because uh, PS40, I think, if you look at its awards and its accolades, it's definitely started out real well, you know, from the first year when we won right. Best New Bar or whatever. 
but in terms of popular opinion, in terms of like a, the regular guy that works at ANZ across the road, some, <laughs> some, some people still don't know we're here. Uh, and that's probably part of the, the entrance to the bar. Uh, and I guess our um, reputation to kind of push the boundaries a little bit. We're not a, we're not a comfortable whiskey bar to, to be, you know, like slamming lagers and drinking whiskey sours or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, Even yeah. though that's also delicious and, and great <laughs> to do sometimes. We, we try to push the boundaries a little bit here. So uh, we're not, uh, we do alienate a few people in, in that kind of respect. But then there's like some drinks that we create that uh, like the Africol is probably the one drink that's probably saved this uh, business from, from ever going under. Um, and that's just something that people bring their friends in to try. Yeah, sure. And it's a real talking point as well. Yeah. So um, there's pros and cons to developing a bar in that kind of style. You don't, People walk in and they don't even know if it's a bar or not. I had a lady come up to me the other day and was like, oh, do you, is this a Japanese tapas place? Uh, I just had a little chuckle. Like, uh, no, but that's a great idea. Maybe, maybe we'll turn it into one. How are you able to manage needing to push that out to the people if you're finding that's the streets of the people is where you're kind of not getting the recognition that you might need. How are you able to try and kind of push that and, and get people in? Things recently with doing Taco Tuesday, for example, yeah. uh, is getting more people who are interested in the food culture and that like, exactly, nice food and bring them um, and, and introduce them to you guys. Like that's a smart way of doing it for you. Definitely did. Uh, I'm, I'm learning as I'm going, did. Like I, I definitely don't have all the answers, that's for sure. I reckon I've learned heaps in the last six months, especially obviously looking after the bar by myself, um, being 100% responsible for what, what it's doing mm. is pretty crazy. Um, having a pandemic uh, hit and, and having to swap to doing delivery cocktails was pretty crazy. And, and that, that made me really appreciate Instagram and social media. Yeah. I, I always looked at it and I was like, oh, the bar needs the fucking Instagram. And, I never really managed the social media aspect as well as I should have. Um, and I really learned from that because um, obviously being closed to the public, um, we started just doing everything on Instagram. So mm. if you wanted to deliver a cocktail, you would direct message us. Uh, if you wanted to see the menu, you would look at our Instagram. And yeah, then yeah. I needed to create hype on that. And then I started seeing the insights on Instagram and I was like, oh my God, we've had like, I don't know, 4,000 more people view our profile today than we did last week. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. the bar's closed. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, the yeah. bar's closed. <laughs> people can't even go to it. And we have so many people viewing our profile. What, like, it's not just because of delivery cocktails. It's because we're now engaging people on that side of things and we're showing them what we're doing. Um, and now with Taco Tuesdays and all these little things, People are coming up to me and being like, man, you guys are doing so much. Mm. And I'm just starting to realize, oh, every time you do something slightly different or uh, do a cool project with like the Chickapanita guys, yeah. it's not just for that project. It's, it's just keeping your name and your bar um, relevant. Yeah. It's, uh, people might not necessarily come in, but they, they might come in uh, in a month's time or two months' time because they've heard about you recently doing something mm. and that it just snowballs a little bit from there right yeah um, so yeah it's just something i'm learning did um one bit at a time just for like we finish up i yep. just want to briefly chat about um how you were able to deal with going through covid uh as a business because obviously that's a bit of a once in a lifetime mm. 
fucking trash to get through. Um, what was it like for you managing um, the business and, and trying to navigate that through and just adding on with recently reopening and how that yeah. was able to go through? Um, it was pretty tough, dude. I was really upset. Uh, I was super sad when uh, the bar was really quiet in the last month or two before we closed down. Um, I was really frustrated that, you know, in the news, um, people were being told not to go out, but businesses were told to still stay open. Mm. It just didn't make any sense. Um, So I was really worried for the future of the business. Um, And when we shut down, um, I was thinking of getting a job in a different industry just to to earn some money whilst the bar was closed. Um, Then uh, after... Um, a day worth of mourning I decided to uh, me, me and my wife had a good chat about it and we thought you know what let's jump straight into it we have a full bar here heaps of spirits heaps of produce in the courtroom uh, let's make something of it and just work as hard as we can to make it work um, so we launched literally I think the day after we just put four posters up on Instagram hadn't even made the drinks yet I, was, I took pre-orders uh, for a clarified punches Clarified punches are great for delivery cocktails because um, they don't have to be drunk on the day. They can stay in your fridge for a month. Wow. Um, and they have great texture, great uh, clarity and flavor. Um, the technique is something that we've done for a very long time. It's essentially like making a tomato consomme. Yeah. You're, yeah, yeah. you're letting it drip real slowly, uh, clarifying it and for, for obviously aesthetics, but flavor as well. And then we launched with four clarified punches or three clarified punches and a breakfast Negroni because mm. um, I knew that once and this is like an experience that I've had as uh, opening up the sodas people treat these things in all sorts of different ways you know um, I was talking to the guys at PMV about it and you can't assume that um, someone's going to buy one of your products and put it in the fridge uh, you almost have to assume the worst case scenario right. that this will happen and it will cause a product to, to go off. Okay? Right. So with a clarified punch, when we deliver it to the house, um, it can stay room temp for like a, a few days and still be put in the fridge and, and, and have a good shelf life. But as soon as we deliver it, it's like, hey, chuck it in your fridge. Uh, it'll last a month in that fridge mm. and then uh, pour it over ice when you're ready. So very simple way of like have, delivering a cocktail to someone. Yep. And um, just launching it straight away was so important. And also knowing like the logistics of ordering these bottles and how this all kind of works yep. previously, it was really important. Um, and just pushing, pushing real hard, dude. We like started taking pre-orders before we made them, right? And I was literally bottling the cocktails, labeling them and delivering them in the same day. I remember the first weekend we went out, uh, one of our, our Campari reps, Tris, helped me out doing the deliveries because I wow. I could not have physically done them myself I learned how to become a very good delivery driver <laughs> over two, two months uh, but I was horrible at the start yeah, and you know yeah. you always want to have a chat to you always want to have a chat to people mm. when you see them especially during COVID uh, obviously at a distance but you want to have a little catch catch up with them see how they're doing yeah. and whatnot and, and uh, that just made my delivery runs so much slower. Uh, <laughs> so in the first few days, uh, the first few weeks, we I was working from 9 a.m. till uh, midnight. Yeah. Like 
Kali would come into the bar and have dinner with me at the bar and I'd just keep working till midnight. She would start help, helping out with labeling and yeah. all that kind of stuff because we couldn't afford to have anyone on board, right? Yeah. So that was what the first like month kind of looked like for me. Um, and then we started getting more organized. We got JobKeeper in. So I, I brought back uh, two of the guys that didn't have to leave the country yeah. um, to then work two to three days a week, helping out with deliveries too. And so when deliveries came through, it wasn't necessarily like start to finish. It was like, oh, let's go into the cool room, grab those bottles and deliver them. Yeah. A bit easier. Yeah, sure. Um, and then we could just streamline the ordering process a little bit. Pete has a great background in web design. So he created a little web store for us. Oh, awesome. Yeah. That's uh, it. As much as I miss direct messaging people, um, it's definitely a lot easier now and a lot faster to, to do ordering. Yeah. And, and now that that's all kind of set up, if... God forbid we go through a second lockdown again. We're ready yeah. for for what might come through. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, and I think a lot of businesses are like that now too. You know, we're not as scared as we were before because we've been through it once. Uh, unfortunately, the guys in Melbourne are going through it again. Mm. Um, and yeah, I yeah. mean, there's not much you can, you can do about it, but try your best, right? Yeah, I saw a lot of them were able to like once it happened again they had to go into lockdown a lot of the bars and restaurants were just like well we know what to do now like yeah literally the day after they're like well it's just deliveries and they're ready for it yeah back, at least back to yeah. normal. it's it's shit but at least that time it's like well fuck well yeah ready at least this oh, time. oh for sure if, so. it, if it happens again i'm not looking for a job in insurance that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah i, I definitely finished that yeah. uh, medical science yeah. degree yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah let's uh we'll, we'll see how we go man yeah how many cocktails are we having to deliver like when you're in isolation um, at the very beginning, it was like 15 to 20 addresses a day, um, yeah, which is day. crazy by yourself. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you're covering a lot of ground. Fuck yeah. <laughs> um, and then I think we worked that out to be like, you could do 12 to 13 addresses in a day, uh, and that would be like a, a doable day. Wow. If you did more than 13 addresses or so, it's like a bit of a stretch. So in terms of the, the future of yourself and PS40, where, where do you see things? heading other besides than just you know trying to keep things afloat with covid do, do you have any plans of who else you'd like to collaborate with or um, where you see yeah. PS40? straight after this actually i'm meeting with a couple of really good chefs who uh might do another different like food takeover on a tuesday awesome um and we might just keep that as a running theme for now because i think food's so important right now um as an attraction for like an early week kind of scenario yeah. And uh, for me, um, I think the most important thing is to, uh, for us is still to uh, not forget that we're here to make some delicious and and, and awesome drinks. Yeah, yeah. Um, And just because we're in COVID and and business is not necessarily normal, um, not to lose sight of that. Yeah. I think that's really easy to lose sight of like when you're just thinking, oh, okay, how can I make the most money with like spending the least? Uh, I don't want that to overtake the number one thing and that's the, the experience of the drinks here. Mm. Um, so I think continually pushing that is really important um, and that's something that I'll probably spend the next couple of weeks trying to reiterate to myself Yeah, rather than... Uh, looking at the worst case scenarios. Yeah, nice. All right, well, it's good to see there's this thing still planning for the, the, the future of PS40. 
Um, before we go, uh, I'd just like you to, to give a couple of shout outs to some of the places you love to go and uh, eat and drink around Sydney. Oh, for sure, dude. I love doing that. Uh, <laughs> it's like my number one hobby. Um, <laughs> shout so, out. Yeah. Uh, well, in the city, dude, like you'll see me at Baxter Inn almost all the time. Um, just because the guys are number one, like hospitality. Like, I feel like I'm at home when I go to the bar there just because I'm comfortable and the guys make me feel at home yeah yeah um, and so you'll see me there a lot on my break and then in terms of eating and drinking um, me and my wife always end up in Marrickville thankfully we've, we've always uh, we've just moved close to it yeah, yeah but we always eat at Eat Fur on a Saturday oh yeah uh, yeah it's real. like at first I thought it was like a horrible fur because it, it didn't traditionally have you know the bean sprouts and the Thai basil on the side <laughs> it, it had everything served in the bowl and, and the Vietnamese mother in me was just like nah <laughs> you can't do that uh, and then the second third time I ate it I was like it's pretty delicious uh, so I always go there um, my one of my new locals in terms of places to drink beer would be the Henson uh, so areas around me um, I'm trying to explore Elwood a little bit more too oh, yeah, and nice. there's this whole huge Greek community out there and uh, so many restaurants I want to try out and, and, and ingredients in these grocery stores that I really want to check out mm. um, in terms of uh, drinking coffee um, uh, been to Ona in, in Marrickville as well really recently and mm. they're just like uh, way ahead of the game hey um, they're super super awesome in coffee uh, right next door to us is Skittle Lane and I I will take it for granted the guys um, I've been drinking their coffee obviously every single day that I work at PS40 but um, every time I take them uh, like a new person there they always make a comment about how good the coffee is mm. and uh, it makes me really appreciate that they're right next door to me uh, so Skittle Lane is absolutely killing it and um, they have a shop in Bondi now as well. Oh, Hector. They're probably one of the only businesses I know that would open. They opened a business just before COVID hit and they've just been so successful out in Bondi. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that's pretty lucky for anyone that's living in the Inner East. Uh, bottle shop wise, PNV is just like mm. uh, one of the coolest places to go. Um, and, and always been a big supporter of our bar. Uh, so they had uh, all the bottled cocktails there as well, which is insane for me because uh, it saves me from driving to, you know, 20 addresses a day um, <laughs> and, and has been a really supportive of us. And then, um, yeah, little shout out to uh, Chef Alejandro, who's the chef for Chica Benito. Hmm. Uh, I've never worked with a chef so humble and so um, accommodating. Like working with him is... Uh, an absolute breeze and I've worked with a lot of chefs before mm. and a lot of them have been really nice as well um, but Alejandro is just a, a bit of a gentleman and mm. his um, his skills uh, are next to none um, his the ingredients and the way that he plays with flavours and um, his preparation of his tacos uh, I'm, I'm, we're very lucky to have him here on the last four Tuesdays mm. so looking forward to tonight yeah, it's the last Taco Tuesday, right? Yeah, last Taco Tuesday. Big yeah. deal. Yeah, really big deal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I think I'm going I'm, I'm to be quite sad tonight. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah. crying over some time. Yeah. yeah, awesome. All right, well, thanks so much for uh, coming on the Roots podcast. Uh, it's an absolute me. pleasure to, to sit down and have a bit of a banter and, yeah, and, and share your journey with everyone. Uh, and thanks to everyone who tuned in to listen. And be sure to follow Roots Foraging on Instagram and stay up to date with the latest info on podcast. Michael, thanks so much for coming on. Cheers, bro. Cheering.